Now please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Psalm 125. Psalm 125, as we continue on in our study this summer in the Psalms of Ascent, this is the sixth of the Psalms that we are looking at. There are 15 total. Uh, We will have a chance to examine 13 of them together, and we'll wait uh, until we get there to see which ones get chopped uh, for sake of time. But uh, this is one that is a psalm. It is a prayer of confidence in the Lord, rejoicing in what the Lord does and has done and will do for his people, that he is the one who makes us secure in him, that makes us like Mount Zion. You can find that if you've got an ESV on page 517. Psalm 125, and before we read this together, please join me in prayer. O gracious Lord, our God, we pray again that you would open your word to us, that you would give us your spirit, that your living word would lay us bare, that we would know more about you, you would cause us to see more of ourselves and our need for a Savior. Help us to know more and to rejoice more in Christ our Lord, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now I'd ask you that you would rise, stand with me as we give attention to the reading of God's holy word as we find it in Psalm 125. This is a song of ascent. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But to those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. You may Be seated, and we'll pray that the Lord will add a blessing as we study it together. As we uh, contemplate uh, the Psalms that we're looking at today, the wide breadth of all the 150 Psalms that we have before us today, looking at just one small slice, I think one way to wrap our minds around the entirety of the Psalter, to, to think perhaps if there is if there is one unifying theme in all the psalms that the Lord has given us, maybe, maybe this psalm touches on that one unifying theme. Maybe it is uh, that theme of trusting in the Lord that we find in the opening verses here. It's no coincidence that the first psalm that we find in the Bible proclaims a blessing upon those who turn away from the wisdom of the world and turn instead to order their lives according to the wisdom of God and of his word. Blessing on those who who turn away from the way of sin and the seat of scoffers and and sinners and turn instead to meditate and to rejoice on what the Lord has taught us. It's a conscious decision, you see, to turn away, to to trust in what the Lord has given us and in his wisdom. And that's the beginning of the Psalter. It really serves to be something like the sounding board upon which every note of the Psalter resonates as we go throughout the rest of the Psalms. The Psalms we know... Now, of course, are poetry. They are songs. They are spirit-inspired praise. Sometimes they are spirit-inspired lament. But they're songs. They're poetry. Let's not forget that they're also prayer. They're prayers of intercession at times. They're prayers of thanksgiving. They are prayers 
of confidence as this one is. There are prayers of confession. There are prayers of longing. There are prayers of assurance. And all of them, as true prayers are, are directed to the God that we believe will hear us and will answer according to His good pleasure. So you see, as prayers themselves, these psalms are an expression of trust. We call out to the one that we believe in, that one that we know will hear and will answer His people. Psalms and prayers are, are the way that our souls cling to God, whether we are going through devastation or whether we are going through delight. And you could look throughout the Psalter and see that and hear it. We quoted today in our opening of our service from Psalm 73 and Psalm 51. And if you know those Psalms, you know that they come from very different backgrounds and they're addressed to very different situations. Psalm 73 is one of those well-known Psalms where, where Asaph is is just tied in knots. He is, he's trying to reconcile and, and, and figure out the wisdom of God in allowing vicious men to devour, to eat up God's people. How can it be that wicked men prosper in the world? And he's struggling with these things. But where does Asaph take his doubts and his struggles? He turns them in prayer to the Lord, of course. He takes his disillusionment with perhaps whatever God might be doing, and he turns even that to the Lord, and he takes it to him. It's a, it's a sense of trust, and this prayer shows us the way the psalmists are trusting in the Lord. The same goes with Psalm 51. It's one of our prayers of confession. It was David's prayer of confession, burdened with the guilt of his sin and, and, and languishing under the weight of it. And where does he turn in sin? He, he turns to the Lord for forgiveness. Oh Lord, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. He can turn in trust even to the God who he believes and knows is pressing down on him and pressing upon him the need for repentance and the truth of forgiveness. He can turn and trust that God with whatever he's going through, with whatever he needs to confess. And we could multiply examples. As we go throughout the Psalter, these Psalms are prayers. They, they come from from sin and from doubt and from fear and from rejoicing. And yet in every single one of them, the undergirding truth is that there is a God who receives our hurts and who hears our prayers. And so perhaps the real unifying theme of the Psalter is not our trust in the Lord, but the Lord who is worthy of our trust. He is the God to whom we can commit our lives and our families. He's the God to whom we can entrust our nation. He's the God to whom we can give our fears. He's the God to whom we can entrust our eternal souls. And as we turn to Him in prayer, we find in His faithfulness that He is worthy of our utmost trust. Now this psalm before us is about trusting in the Lord, or perhaps rather it's about the Lord who is trustworthy. A God who makes his own people steadfast through faith. Just a few verses, just five short verses, but in these verses the, the prevailing word picture moves us in a sort of uh, downward uh, descent, a descent from that which is solid to that which is crumbling, that which is passing away. So we find in the opening verses, the first two, what we learn is that the, it is the Lord who gives his people Permanence. This is where we start tonight, that it's the Lord who gives his people permanence. Read again, verses 1 and 2. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved. 
abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Those verses mean that God is the defender of his people. That he encircles, that he fortifies his children against attacks. And so that means that God's people are not like the temple. The temple which could be destroyed and was destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed again. God's people are not like Jerusalem which could be overthrown and was and is occupied and today even remains divided. God's people aren't like just the things that that find a home on Mount Zion. God's people are like the mountain itself, that half-mile hill of bedrock limestone, immovable because of the Lord and the way that he gives permanence to his people. And so in a sense, it doesn't matter what happens on the surface of the mountain. The nations may rage and they may, uh, they may rearrange the surface. The flag on the capital there may go from Jebusite to Israelite, to Babylonian, to Persian, to Greek, to Roman, and on and on for the rest of history, and it may wind up in somebody else's hands. And outward circumstances might shake and threaten God's chosen people, and yet they remove, they remain as unmoved as the mountain. They are encircled by God's watchful care. And wouldn't it be nice if it felt, felt, like that description was true of you. Eugene Peterson, uh, the late Eugene Peterson, described his own life this way. He said, the person of faith is described as one who cannot be moved. But I am moved. I'm full of faith one day, and I'm empty with doubt the next. I wake up one morning full of vitality, rejoicing in the sun. The next day I'm gray and dismal. I'm faltering and moody, cannot be moved. Nothing could be less true of me. I can be moved by nearly anything. Sadness, joy, success, failure. I'm a thermometer. I go up and down with the weather. He's not being cynical there, folks. Neither is he presenting something like life before Christ, as though once we come to the Lord, all of our vicissitudes just, just vanish and everything will be nice and solid, and we will never feel shaken in this life. Our experience of this life will never be with trembling. He's not trying to insinuate that, but he is reminding us that if there is anything solid about our walk with the Lord, it must come from our Lord and not from us. That's the point of this psalm. Those who trust in the Lord abide forever. Why? Well, because the Lord encircles his people. He surrounds them from this time forth and forevermore. Actually, in the Hebrew, both of those words, forever and forevermore, it's the same. It, to eternity, unto the ages. It just keeps going and it never stops. Our solidity is found in his eternity. And because by faith we are united to him, we receive all of his strength and all of his security. And it is the Lord who makes his people permanent. We tend to forget that. We forget it, and when we do, we start looking in all the wrong places for spiritual security. It's one way that we do it, a typical way that we do it. The psalm says that those who trust in the Lord cannot be shaken. And our typical mistake is to uh, look for security and how strongly, how well we're trusting ourselves. 
That is, when our spiritual lives begin to quake, we have that all-too-human tendency to look inside to ourselves rather than upward to the Lord. We judge our security by how firmly we're holding on to God's promises rather than how firm God's promises are for us. Maybe you've watched a Christian mentor walk away from the faith. That can be devastating if you've experienced it. Here's someone who led you and discipled you. You got to see in their life, in their daily walk, what seemed like the gospel power at work by the Holy Spirit in their life. It seemed like they were unstoppable in their faith. Nothing could shake them. And they encouraged you, and you wanted to be like them in a sense. Not like them instead of like Jesus, but like them, like Paul wanted people to be like him. To follow his example, to strive after Christ. And they inspired you in your faith. But then came the scandal. And the cover-up. And then came the lies and the pride and finally the truth that left maybe an entire church shattered. It happens that way sometimes. Several years ago, there was a very well-known, very well-respected evangelical pastor in Scotland who took his own life. When his wife discovered that he had been engaged in secret, adulterous affairs with at least seven different women in the church. Sometimes the people who appear like mountains of faith crumble before our eyes. And we're left wondering what happened and wondering how if that person, if all people could fall, if they could maybe fool everybody else, if they could maybe even fool themselves in the deceitfulness of their heart, desperately wicked, who can know it? If they could fool themselves, how do we know that we're standing in the Lord? How do we know that we can overcome our temptations? How do we know that we can overcome the things that would threaten to draw us away from Christ? How can we know if our faith is strong enough? We begin to look inside of ourselves for some, some sign, some spark of stability. And when we do that, we're looking in the wrong direction. As difficult as it is, as hard as it is, when you watch false believers turn away from the faith, there is a blessing of preservation there, a protective blessing. And it happens when you see that train wreck unfolding before you and you witness what others are going through and you realize, I am exactly like they are. You don't try to figure out if you're stronger than they are or if your faith is stronger than they are. You realize you're exactly like they are. You are exactly as unable to keep yourself in the grace of God as they are. And if it were left up to you, you would have fallen away long ago. It's a blessing for us. Because as the Lord allows us to realize that about ourselves, we cry out to Him. We cry out in prayer to the one who is able to keep us from stumbling. We cry to our Father, lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. Make me run with endurance the race marked out for me. When we cry to Him in our weakness, He answers us in almighty strength. It's the paradox of the gospel. When we find that His strength is made perfect in our weakness. That His grace is sufficient for us when our strength doesn't amount to much at all. 
paradox is that the more that we learn how little we can trust ourselves for spiritual security, the closer we draw near to our God in prayer, and it is there that we find stability, there that we find permanence. It's there that we find that our God is the one who surrounds his people as the hills surround Jerusalem from this time forth and forevermore. It's there that we find that he does it for his own namesake. He does it because Christ has told us that he knows his sheep. and They hear his voice and he gives them eternal life and they will never perish and no one can snatch them out of his hand. Why does he do it? Prove that it is he alone, God alone, who gives his people permanence. First thing we learn in this psalm, and the second is that the Lord makes our trials temporary. The Lord gives his people permanence, and the Lord makes our trials temporary. And so verse 3 begins this descent. It moves from what is firm to what is fleeting. Verse 3, the scepter of wickedness shall not on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. It seems like this is perhaps the background, the, the historical background, vague as it is, that might have inspired this song. It's another one of these national crises. And all the people of God collectively are crying out. There is a, a scepter of wickedness, whatever that means, and actually it could be taken in a few different ways. It could be a scepter in the sense of a scepter belonging to a king, maybe a foreign ruler is coming in and oppressing God's people. Maybe it's homegrown oppression. Maybe it's, it's the rod, the rod of discipline is another way that we could, we could understand it. But it is wickedness. It's, it's not good. It's, it's oppression for, uh, for harm and not for good. And They see it that way and they cry out to the Lord. But however we understand it, we're told that this is an evil that God's people will find to be temporary. The key word there is rest. The scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. That word means that it will not be allowed to take up permanent residence. There's a difference between the guy who awkwardly crashes on your couch for a few weeks and somebody who moves in and goes down to the post office and files a change of address. The psalm is saying that the scepter of wickedness is not going to get the chance to file a change of address. They might, they might in fact... Sleep out on your couch and in your living room and take up your space and invade your life for a few awkward weeks and that might happen. They might pay you a visit. And we know that that happens in our lives. We know it to be true from the whole witness of Scripture. We have the testimony of Christ himself that in this world we will have tribulation, he says in John chapter 16, verse 33. We have it from Paul as well. Through Luke, Acts chapter 14, verse 22, Paul uh, has just been attempted, uh, attempt, his, suffered attempted murder, however we would put that. They tried to stone him to death at Lystra. And he went on, he, he got up, the Lord preserved his life, and he went on and he preached together with Barnabas in a few places, and then they said, you know what, let's go back to Lystra. Let's go back where they tried to kill me. And it says that they returned, Paul and Barnabas together, and they strengthened the souls of the disciples encouraged them to continue in the faith. And they said that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And he had the scars to prove it. And we've come to expect it. We know that life doesn't show up on our doorstep with hassle-free packaging. God's people are often afflicted by sin and by suffering, and we know it to be true. But this is a promise. 
This is a promise that the trials that God's people can face can at worst only be temporary. And we can trust in that for two reasons. First, we can believe that, we can trust it because of the promise of God's covenant. And there's a tension here in verse 3. The tension is between the trials they're facing and the inheritance they've received. It's a tension between the scepter of wickedness and the land allotted to the righteous. You know, every family in Israel, except for the Levites, every family had a homestead. They had a plot of land that had been given to them and to their family in perpetuity to be passed down as a perpetual possession of God's covenant promise. And so when the nation entered Israel, the land was divided, and it was farmed, and it was bought, and it was sold, and it was traded to pay off debts. But in the 50th year, at the time of Jubilee, every single acre went back to the family to whom it was owed. There was a claim that they had. They had received it from the Lord. They hadn't earned it. They hadn't deserved it, but he had promised it, and he had given it to them in his covenant. Though we tend to refer to Canaan as the promised land, God's covenant actually was much larger than those little plots that they had, a place to farm and raise children. God's covenant, His promise to Israel is that He would be their He would be their God and they would be His people. His real covenant promise was a relationship of loyalty, and as important as the land was, it was in a sense merely the outward expression of God's commitment to his people, his, his commitment to be their God. And so when the psalmist says that the scepter won't rest on the land allotted to the righteous, he's invoking covenant promises. He's invoking God's steadfastness in his covenant. Secondly, he's invoking the promise of God's purpose. The promise of God's covenant and the promise of his purpose. The scepter will not rest. Why? Well, lest the righteous reach out their hands, put out their hands to do wrong. You know, the Lord knows our limits. Are you aware of that? That the Lord knows how much we can handle before our hearts turn to cynicism, before our hands reach out to do violence. He knows how prone we are to lash out, to, to defend ourselves, to lash out in anger or despair. And the Lord has a purpose in these trials. The purpose is not to crush us, but to strengthen us. His purpose is the holiness of his people, and that he won't allow that to be threatened by overexposure to these trials, and so he puts a limit to these things. And he who can put a limit to the seas and draw the borders for the mountains can also draw a limit and a border for your troubles and your trials. In the 4th century, John Chrysostom, compared God's dealing with his people to uh, a musician with his instrument. Chrysostom said, The Lord will not let the strings of his lute be too slack, that it should mar the music, nor will he suffer them to be too hard stretched, lest they break. See, the Lord brings trials into his people's life for specific reasons. Not to crush us, but to strengthen us. Not to threaten us or to torment us, but to tune us to his heart of righteousness, to keep us walking in holiness with him. That means that our trials, at worst, can only ever be temporary. Dear believer, you need to remember that. 
You need to remember it now, especially if you're not particularly facing any trials. Because it may be that once you get into those trials, your temptation will be to think that things are always going to be this way. The cloud settles in over, over top of you, and you think, I may never see the sun again. That spiritual darkness gathers around you, and you think, I'm, I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, but this valley doesn't have an end. And I'll never come out on the other side. You'll be tempted to think that way when you enter into trials. And the promise that we have here is that it can only be temporary. Well, the truth is that those trials may last for quite some time. You may face a loss that you carry with you for decades. You may struggle with the fight of mortifying a particular sin until the day you die. We may live in a culture that only gets increasingly hostile to the message of the gospel and anyone who believes it. But even those things, as difficult and disheartening as they may be, may only be temporary. They can only be temporary. And we know this because the Lord has given us promises. An eternal covenant written in the blood of his, his beloved Son. The Lord has made us a covenant through Christ to be our God and to take us for his people. Our God has made eternal promises to us. A promise to take away our heart of stone and to give us a heart of flesh. A promise to write his law upon our hearts. To lead us to himself. To make us his people. He's given us a promise to grow us in holiness and in righteousness after the image of Jesus. He's promised to prepare a place for us and to come back and to take us to where he is. Because God's promises cannot be broken, our trials at worst can only be temporary. And it is because of the Lord and his trustworthiness that we can believe that. Now in the final verses, we see one more step away from what is solid and into what is crumbling. We have learned, seen that God gives his people permanence. We have seen that he makes our trials temporary, and last we find that the Lord leads the wicked away. The Lord leads the, the wicked away. Verse 4, do good, O Lord, to those who are good, to those who are upright in their hearts, but those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with the evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. It's clear from this context, I hope you see it, that, that those who are good, those who are upright, are good only because of God's mercy. It's not anything in themselves. Their uprightness doesn't come from within them. It comes only by faith as a gift of God. Their uprightness, their righteousness is as the righteousness of Abram, who believed God and what he said, and, and the Lord counted it as righteousness. They press forward in faith to believe what the Lord has spoken. But there are those who will not follow where God's promises are pointing them. Notice verse 5. It says, there are those who turn aside to their crooked ways. That is, to their own crooked ways. Not to the temptation of, of outside forces. Not to, not to some arm twisting. From some malicious influence. It often looks that way. From the outside, we see people who profess faith in the Lord and we watch them falling away. 
and we can see it coming, and we, we can say, you know, I, I saw all those books that they were reading, and man, that's a bad influence. You know, I saw the friends that they came home with from their first year at college, and, and they had professed, and they seemed to be standing so strongly, and, and we looked up to them, and we were so excited for their future, but, you know, they, they got in with the wrong crowd. Maybe we could point to the pain of some suffering that seems to have poisoned the well of their Christianity. And all of those things might be contributing factors. But in the end, what do we need to reject the faith that the Lord has proclaimed to us? In the end, all we need is to choose our own wisdom instead of His. Turn aside to our crooked ways. To seek our own stability instead of the promise that he has given for permanence in him. Folks, what is the punishment that comes upon those who turn from the Lord to their own crooked ways? The Lord gives them what they want. That's what he does. They want a life without God's influence, without his wisdom, hanging over their head all the time, telling them, no, actually, you should believe this. No, actually, you should do this. No, actually, you should go in this way. No, actually, I, I care for you, and I have, I have standards for your life, and they want a life without that influence. They want a wisdom. They want a morality that conforms to their own ideals. Jeremiah describes it, chapter 2, verse 13, they have forsaken the fountains of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns which can hold no water. And what is the punishment the Lord gives to those who hew out for themselves cisterns of broken water? He allows them to drink from the cup that they have poured. Do you remember Paul's argument in Romans chapter 1? And he lists all the degrading sins by which men and their unrighteousness suppress the truth of God. They hold it like someone they're trying to choke and drown under the surface of the water where it can do them no harm. Men and their unrighteousness suppress the truth of God and they hold it down. And what does the Lord do? When they take the truth of God, what can be known about him through all that he has made, his eternal power, his, his glorious attributes, they take that truth of God which can be known and they exchange it for a lie because it's more comfortable. What does he do? He gives them up. That's their punishment. They get what they want. A life without God's influence and interference. He hands them over. He allows them to walk in their own crooked ways. This is the way the Lord handles the wicked. Those who will not trust his word or his promises. Those who are not his sheep. Those who will not hear his voice. Those who refuse to follow him. His punishment is that he allows them to follow their crooked paths. Away from his covenant. And away from his mercy away from his wisdom. And he leads them away with the evildoers. Dear believers, the application of this passage, in theory, is very simple. In practice, it is impossible by your own strength. 
Not something you can do. Not, not a stability you can work for yourself. The application of this passage is to go about the business of applying the lifelong first principles of biblical wisdom 101. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. It's the only way to escape from the crooked bypaths and, and the ways that we would choose for ourselves to trust the Lord. To cry out to Him. To recognize our weakness and ask for His strength. It's the only way to find solidity. The only place we can find security for our souls. Clinging to the God who is worthy of our trust. He's given His Son to make us His people. Clinging to the God who makes His people steadfast by faith. Would you join me in prayer? Oh, gracious Lord, our God, we thank you for your steadfastness. We thank you that you, O oh Lord, are our rock, immovable, our fortress and our redeemer. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would be with any tonight among our number who may be beginning to stray. We're listening to the influences and going after those friends and maybe contemplating the pain that seems too difficult to bear. Oh Lord, draw them in faith to yourself. Keep them. Hold your people. Do not let them go. Oh Lord, it is your work. We pray you would fulfill it in the lives of your people. For your name's sake we ask. Amen. And now, brothers and sisters in Christ, hear God's good word for you, his benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.